Hi, this is Mike Balaban with another episode of Bammer and Me. Today, my guest is Barbara Poma, the, I guess, technically still owner, but former owner of, owner of the Pulse Disco in Orlando, where a horrible tragedy happened six or seven years ago. Uh, it's quite well known. I don't think we need to describe that much more, but I'm really honored to have Barbara here today to help kind of explain how she got involved in that business, what happened on that horrific night, what the aftermath entailed, and where they're heading with efforts to memorialize it. Barbara, thank you for joining us today. Mike, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, You know, why don't we start with your upbringing and background? What kind of childhood did you have? And I want to take our listeners in the direction of something that really had you gravitate to becoming an ally of the LGBT community at a very early age. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, I consider myself a really lucky girl. Um, I have, um, we are a family of five. I have, there's four siblings, uh, three brothers and a sister. And one of my brothers who happens to be the closest in age to me, his name is John, he's four years older than I am, you know, came out in our family. And he came out in the early 80s um, in our very stereotypical Catholic Italian family in South Florida. And so, you know, it didn't go very well at first, not a proud moment for my family, but not unusual in many stories of people coming out. Um, And so during that time, you know, my parents were doing the traditional fixes, you know, send him to the priest, send him to the therapist, try to control him, get him through this phase. And so during those times, you know, I just kind of became John's tag along. Now I'm 14, actually, I might've been a little bit younger, 13, 14, 15 years old. And, and, um, so whenever John wanted to leave the house and go do something, my mom would be like, just, just take your sister. And so he did. And so like he, he would say to my mom, you know, I want to go to the beach. And she'd be like, that's all right. You know, just take Barbara with you. And he would say, sure, I'll take Barbara with me. And so I would go. And because, you know, John and I were complete polar opposites in personality. I am your straight A, check every box, follow every rule kind of girl. And my brother was break every rule, do whatever I want and deal with it later. He was funny. He was witty. He was, you know, he could make up funny songs and lyrics and he was musical. And John was just, um, he was, he was a light of my life. And like I said, my first best friend. So my mom thought, of course, if she takes Barbara, if he takes Barbara with her, he's not going to do anything, you know, gay in front of Barbara. And of course, I don't know why she would trust him because John would do anything in front of me. And, and so he did. So when we would go to the beach per se, you know, we did go to the beach. We did not lie. Um, so I was covered there. I didn't, I didn't stress out, but we just didn't tell mom which beach we went to. You know, we didn't tell her we went to the gay beach in the Fort Lauderdale strip or we went to tea dance across the street from the beach. So there are those moments where, um, you know, I was just exposed to and grew up in the gay community. I mean, to me, um, that was normal and it was my normal. And I thought everybody had an incredible brother like I did. And um, I loved John very much. Um, he was my yin and we were, you know, each other's yin and yang. And so it was a nice little balance we had. And then in the early 90s, um, we lost John in the AIDS epidemic, um, just like hundreds of thousands of others, gay men. Um, but we lost him in the epidemic. And um, when he died, I lost, you know, a big piece of my life. And I missed him dearly. And I spent a lot of time after his death working in the HIV world here volunteering at our local Hope and Help Center or Centaur we had back then. And babies were being born back then, you know, HIV positive and left in hospitals. So we had a great organization here. We used to bring the babies home with AZT packs on and need people just to help managing babies, holding them, feeding them and taking care of them. So that's how I stayed connected to the community after he died. But um, I, you know, I just, I grew up in, in that community and that's all I knew. 
I was that weird girl. I was that weird girl or annoying girl to all you gay men who brought her straight girlfriends to the gay bars in college because that's the only bars I had ever been into. So I was that. Well, not to use the, I mean, the disparaging term fag hag, but yeah. you know, you were a relative, but you you were that young girl that went everywhere, and that that was that must have been. Uh, an amazing experience, but also a huge hole left in your heart uh, when he died. Of course. You made me think of my time on my first trip uh, as a, an openly gay man. It was to Fort Lauderdale in 1977, and I ended up at the Marlin Beach Hotel, which used to have these big, fabulous tea dances. Was that by any chance still in existence when you were going with him to the bars and the beach? I didn't go to that one, but I certainly heard of that one. Um, this was the, let's see, about 85, 84, somewhere around there. So I certainly heard of the Marlin, but I don't know if that's the one I went to because we were in Fort Lauderdale. Right. So, so pivoting from your childhood to your adulthood mm-hmm. um how did you meet your husband and can you describe what your life together was like in the years before pulse entered the picture sure so i um i graduated from college and became a school teacher i used to teach all the english electives in the middle school and high school ages so um that's where i was working and as a girl who came out of college with as you can imagine student loan debt um, i had to work during the summer and so I went to work um, in a restaurant company that happened to be owned by my husband, but he wasn't my husband yet because a girlfriend that I knew was working there and she knew I needed help, you know, help during, you know, work during the summer. So she told me to come apply and I went and got a job there. And that's where I met my husband it was in one of his restaurants. And so it was like one of those love at first sight stories. We both joke about it. You know, I saw him and I was like, I'm going to marry that man. And she's like, don't you know who that is? I'm like, no. And she's like, that's the owner. And and he felt the same way. So we married two years later. um, And I went to work with him in the business. And so I never went back to teaching after that summer. I stayed on, he hired me on, um, wasn't, we weren't dating then, but he hired me on to stay and, and do some training programs for his, for his company. And that's all she wrote. That's how we got married. And um, it was a, interesting time of life because my husband, I'm Italian, but my husband is Sicilian. And so we always joke about how those are two very different things. And he had never been exposed to the gay community. He never knew my brother. So he, you know, he jokingly said to me, at least I think he was joking. He said to me, you know, I wouldn't mention to my mom that you had a gay brother who died of AIDS. And I'm like, um, that's going to be kind of hard to do. Our parents will meet, you know, our moms will talk and, and that's going to come up. So he had never been exposed to the gay community before and didn't, um, you know, he was very close-minded at the time. Was that adjustment for him hard? And I'm, I'm sure it happened gradually, but. Well, I hadn't been connected back to the community yet at that point in time. So the way we got, he got connected to it is because we opened a restaurant in a neighborhood here in Orlando. So we owned many restaurants between Orlando and, and a Disney area. And so my husband's really entrepreneurial, great businessman, and restaurants were his thing and other small businesses. So he opened a restaurant in a gay neighborhood and didn't know it. And so I found this very funny. Um, I thought this is this is going to be a good little show over the years. And sure enough, the first weekend he was opened, um, a gay man put his arm around him and my husband jumped like, what are you doing? And he's like, you're awfully jumpy for a man who opened a restaurant in a gay neighborhood. And I was just like, this is going to be this is going to be awesome. And it was awesome. But it was there that we met, you know, our, our nearest, dearest, greatest family friend who became part of our family. And his name is Ron Legler. And, and it was over about a year into our friendship, I think, 
could have been less, but Ronnie had come to my husband with this idea of owning a gay bar. He'd always want to own a gay bar. And, and Rosario's like, listen, I've come a long way, you know, and I'm completely open and affirming to this entire community. They're my family. I love, and I love this community. He's like, but I don't think I can own a gay bar. That's like one step too, too close, you know? Um, and so Ron had, had worked on finding a location and showing Rosario the business model and, and kind of won him over. And Rosario looked at me and he was like, if you and Ronnie will do this, we'll do it. Because he's like, I don't want to have to step foot in it. You have to run it and operate it and uh, figure it out. So I ran all of our businesses during the day. And um, I was raising babies at home, so I couldn't be there at night. So Ronnie was there in the evening, and I was there during the day when we first opened. Yeah. Are, are you talking now? That's how Pulse now, was born. That's how Pulse was you, born. So that that opportunity was Pulse, and it, yes. and it came yes. and it came about because Ron brought the idea of the location, the property that he had found and looked into to both of you, and persuaded. Well, since your husband's not going to do it, why don't you do it? Well, no, it was more like Rosario's like if he loved the business model. He says it looks like it's a great business model. Um, but he just, and he would fund it and he did, he helped, uh, they worked on, they designed it, they constructed it. I mean, cause it was an old building and that's how Pulse was born. And when was that? What year did Pulse uh, open? Pulse opened in July, 2004. So, um, you know, I know from talking to you, first of all, let me just draw the parallels here. You're essentially an accidental gay bar owner and an accidental uh, LGBTQ philanthropist. Mm -hmm. um, I'm an accidental gay historian. So we both have found ourselves drifting into new professions, as it were, uh, that we never foresaw. Mm -hmm. um, so I know from speaking to you that you had a kind of a, an inclusive philosophy in how you ran Pulse. And I, I find it to be emblematic of what is becoming commonplace in the community today, but was not so much so almost 20 years ago. Do you want to describe what philosophy you you that drove you and how you ran yeah, the business? The very first thing that Ron and I found to be most important is that we wanted to build a beautiful, clean space that every LGBTQ plus person would be proud to bring their mother. The gay bars I grew up in were not those kind of places. The, the bars here in Orlando weren't those kind of places. And so we just wanted a, a place that this community be proud and, and welcoming to like, like bring your families here, bring your straight friends here. And we were, you know, that was super, super important to us. Uh, we had won an award, a local award here, like the best place to bring your straight friends, um, best gay bar. So, you know, that was a, that was really crucial. And you we knew after the shooting, obviously, that we had been successful in, in creating that atmosphere. Because you know, two mothers uh, were murdered in the, in the shooting, and you know, one was dancing with her gay son, and one was having a, a guy, you know, her a night out after having her second baby with her friends. So you know, it was just it was a sad way to learn that we had accomplished what we had set out to accomplish, but we had. Um, we even lost fathers that evening as well. The people don't always talk about, but there were dads in there as well that night on June twelfth. I'm thinking also partly of how you described to me, if I recall correctly, that you did not want to have separate nights for lesbians and trans and whatever, and that you right. also hired staff that represented all different parts of the community. Would you share a little bit about, about that philosophy? Yeah, it was um, it was, it was was intentional. And, and I remember in the very beginning, you know, a lot of women would say, why can't we just have a lesbian night? I'm like, why can't you come on every day? I mean, we have girls behind the bar. We have girls dancing on the bar, we have girls at the front door. We had trans people who worked there as, as managers, as entertainers. 
Um, and it was just, you know, it wasn't your typical gay bar. It wasn't, and it wasn't just a typical boy bar. Like it wasn't just jocks when you walk in the door, right? You had people of every race, color, size, age, uh, demographic, uh, gender identity, and was staffed that way. It was important to our bartenders that they said, you know, not every gay person looks like that. And so they should be walking to a place that feels like they belong here. We wanted everyone to felt like they belonged inside Pulse. And so our, our hiring team, our, you know, our staff and our managers were really intentional about hiring that and making sure that everyone felt welcome when they walked in the door. And, 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 it, and, we, and they did. What we did change at Pulse nightly was music formats. So, you know, Saturday night happened to be Latin night and it had only been two years running at the time. Um, so you would find Latin music on the main dance floor. And then you'd find hip hop in the dancer room and maybe some house on the patio or, you know, mixtures of all kinds of music on the patio. And on Friday nights, you'd find hip hop on the main dance floor and Latin music on the patio and house in the dance room. So it, and Wednesdays was college night. So you just had house music on the dance floor. So nights um, were really determined by music and just kind of by culture, but not necessarily by your gender identity. And that was really important. And it really did bring everyone together every day of the week. In my experience, um, I, that may be unique. It's certainly not common. Uh, was it hard to d drive the community in that direction I at think, the beginning? You know, people said it would be. Um, but I, I think that we felt, because we were a new shiny object and it was beautiful, I think people were just like, well, we'll just go. You know, we'll get dressed up and we can just go there. And it kind of just happened over time. You know, I think by the time Pulse... Um, had been closed in 2016. We had the reputation of being a young bar. People would say like, oh, the bar's too young. But in Latin night, you could see people there who were 18. You could see people there who were in their 50s. So it was just people's perception, but it really was a place for everyone. Well, you know, I mean, it, it's also pretty axiomatic that gay bars generally are for the young. I'm not saying older people don't go and can't go, but I mean, the people who have the time and who can stay out till three in the morning and still work at eight the next morning That's tend correct. to be 25, <laughs> not 50. That's what happy hours for. Um, That's, yeah. us. That's what happy hours for. So had you ever had any threats of violence before the evening that the No, uh, we never had any, any problems at Pulse. Um, never, the whole time we were open. You weren't at the bar the night it was attacked, but I would love to hear your sense of when you heard what it felt like how and did you did you run to the bar how did you deal with the aftermath right on on the day or, and or two after that happened i happened to be out of the country i was in mexico so i i couldn't run to the bar i had to wait for a flight it was late in the evening and there were no flights until early in the morning in, at mexico but i was notified just minutes after the shooting began uh, one of my managers happened to be at the front register. So when the shooting started, he got out very quickly um, within the first couple of minutes and called me and um, was trying to explain to me what was happening. I, and I, it didn't make any sense to me. Like he was yelling at me through the phone, like there's shoot, someone he's shooting, there's someone shooting. And I was like, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like they, they said, no, you must be talking about the shooting that we had last night or the night before um, in Orlando where Christina Grimmie was killed and he's like no in the club right now and then I had to step out of where I was because it was loud and then I could hear all this booming and he, and then I realized what he was saying um so obviously I had no idea the magnitude of it because it was only minutes in uh, when I had first learned and so um yeah it was a I was happened to be on a trip with my daughter it was her high school graduation 
and I was with two other mothers and their daughters. So it was those two other mothers who um, carried me back to my room um, and stayed with me, got on our knees and we prayed. Um, and they helped me get a flight back and helped pack me up and get me out the door. Um, I was so um, dazed and confused and state of like shock that I didn't even book a ticket for my daughter to come home with me. She stayed and went home with them. Um, but my main focus was just to get back. Um, I look back and I'm thinking I left my daughter in Mexico, but I know I left her with people. But, you know, it was just like that moment of when you start to clear up years later. And so I got back on the first flight from Mexico. I came back alone. This definitely um, felt like a home invasion. I mean, gay bars um, generally are sanctuaries and second homes for our community. But from my relationship to my staff and my team, which we're still very much connected today, majority of us who all still live here, they, they were our family. And my, my children grew up inside Pulse. I mean, there's when I, before they were school-aged and we had staff meetings on Wednesdays in the morning, or, you know, I would bring my kids with me to my staff meetings. And they knew them and um, they watched them grow up. And I watched a lot of them grow up. So they definitely was a family relationship and still it still is. We still get together and have dinner. We're doing that tomorrow night, actually. And uh, but for me, the first thing I did with on the phone call as I was trying to figure out what was happening and realizing that there was a shooting happening inside. I remember talking to my manager, going through a roll call. You know, asking where every staff member was, who's who's out, who's still inside, what do we know? Like it became hours and upon hours of just phone tree, figuring out who was where. And most of the staff who was working, which there were 26 on staff that night, were um a lot of their phones were still inside. So um it was it took us a long time to gather everyone. How, how many staff members uh were killed that evening? One. Oh wow, that's amazing. Kimberly, yeah, Kimberly Morris, KJ was our um, others were injured, but only uh, KJ was the only one we lost. You know, forgive me for making you relive this, but for those listening to this podcast who, who either aren't familiar with or have forgotten the, the severity and the extent of the extreme damage, can you just describe briefly what the outcome of that evening was? Sure. 49 people lives were taken that night. Um, they ranged from someone who was here out of town celebrating her graduation from high school to a mother dancing with her son. Um, you had 68 injured. You had hundreds more mentally affected for the rest of their lives as survivors. You had first responders who have been changed forever, who some who didn't go back to work. You had doctors and nurses and 911 callers. I mean, the ripple effect of what occurred that evening has changed hundreds of lives. I mean, it's hundreds upon hundreds of lives. And it's um, something you, you can't don't ever get over. It's not something you don't ever even get through. It's just something I guess we all have to learn to live with. That's what trauma looks like. But what's always I want to remind people about is that our shooting didn't last minutes. It lasted three hours. And most mass shootings are over quickly. And ours was not. You know, ours took three hours for it to be over. They first um, broke the glass outside our our where we had a water feature outside pulse to use it as a entry into the building. It 208. And by the time they had um, blown the sidewalls out in the bathrooms where the perpetrator had kept survivors and victims hostage for three hours was, you know, five in the morning before they blew those those walls out. So it, it, um, it's very different, you know, what happened there than what's normal for mass shooting. Which, you know, it's, it's even horrific that we have to even think of mass shootings as normal. Um, yeah. you know, but, um, 
So he it was a sole alone perpetrator. Yes, and we were um, while he was there. He had made calls to nine one one. Obviously, he had made calls to the news stations. He had claimed his allegiance um, to Islam, and you know we are labeled a terrorist attack. And um, he was there, and he he tortured and murdered people in those bathrooms for three hours. I, what I don't understand is if his intent was to murder, and I, obviously I wish he hadn't gotten anyone. Why would you hold on for that long? Was the tension getting? I think because um, the police had not, the police had attempted to go in twice, um, but then they had um, a reason to believe that there were bombs. Um, and so they had stopped coming in. So he was trapped inside. And so they had to find a way to get in. And well, first, they had to make sure that there was no bombs anywhere. And then they found um, a way to isolate him in there. I guess he was isolated on that one side of the building. And that's when they decided to blow the walls out. And, and that's where they um, took him down. So they blew down the wall in order to get in on, on that side of the building. Well, so what mm-hmm. happened to him? They killed him. They killed him when they blew out the walls. Right. Wow. How does a community, how do any individuals who were there that night recover from, from such a tragic and scarring event? You know, is there, was there any mass therapy made available by the Orlando city government and community? In other words, what did people have to take care of their own healing? No, no. I mean, our, our city of Orlando and our Orange County, our county, did an amazing job, along with the FBI, did an incredible job of setting up a family um, resource center. It's called the Orlando United Assistance Center. They had an immediate response set up where people, could, families and, and survivors could go. But then after that was closed down, they had a center for them where um, there's a federal grant that um, does, gives funding for mental health services for three years. And while that sounds amazing, uh, because people technically had free therapy, Three years is not enough time. There are people who are, you know, we're six and a half years out and there are people who are just now seeking therapy. Also remember that 96% of the people inside Pulse that evening were Hispanic um, and not English speaking. So we had we had the had problem of finding therapists who spoke Spanish. There was a problem also finding those who were properly trauma trained as well as LGBTQ plus competent. So there was three factors of finding people, um, helping getting people the help that they needed. But as, as far as um, response, you, you couldn't find more global and local response than we had here from Pulse. I mean, there was more blood donated. There was money pouring in. There was money pouring in from all over the world. Um, our city had held, they had taken all the GoFundMes, like Florida Quality had a GoFundMe, and all these organizations had GoFundMes, and they lumped it into one big group, in which Ken, Ken, uh, Ken Feinberg, who did 9-11's disbursements, disbursed, but I think there's like over $33 million raised for our families and survivors. All of that had nothing to do with uh, me or the foundation. Um, I'm not a survivor, right? So that I, you know, I and I can't speak for survivors. Um, their stories should be heard and should be told um, because, you know, some people talk therapy they weren't ready for it. Some people talk therapy doesn't work for them. Some people is a cultural issue, right? And there's just stigma. And so, trauma is is life changing. People don't realize this, but People don't go back to who they were before that day, ever. They they have a new um, coping mechanisms. They have new life trajectories. Some people um, excel and, and find their life's work in this mission, whether they go um, march with Moms Demand Action or March for Your Lives, or if they go work in politics to change laws, but gun violence, people, people find ways to become advocates and some people don't. And so everyone 
does it in their own way. And it's a completely individual um, experience. And so I think that um, we couldn't have asked for a better response as far as services. Um, there were even there was even money um, helping them pay their bills for a certain period of time through our OUAC. So they had an incredible response. But I, I know I think the federal grant, while it is all well intended, it is extraordinarily helpful the first three years. Um, certainly does not last long enough because um, people are still needing help today. And they still need um, medical attention today. Uh, we have a couple survivors who still have surgeries. Um, we have, but I can tell you that our hospital systems initially forgave, uh, one of our hospital systems gave, forgave $12 million in medical bills, all the initial medical bills. So, I mean, there was a lot of help, but it's it's um, never never long enough. Well, it's you know, it's not unusual when you have to contend with such trauma that some of the people in that in the circumstances end up becoming activated as activists as a result. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can look at the Parkland shooting, and some of those people have made their life's calling going out and trying to fight guns and and you know and uh, acts of terror. So right. uh, I'm sure some of the people in uh, Pulse Disco that evening are still dealing with that on a daily basis as as the focus of their lives. And then other people are just trying to repair their lives in different different ways. Was it so highly concentrated Latino crowd because it was Latino music night? Yes. Got it. Yeah, 96% of those who were taken that night were of the black and brown community. Right. Which is also a testimony to how inclusive your club was because it shifted based on the music and the night, but it always had, it wasn't primarily gay white men, which is what most yeah. gay discos uh, offer. Um, so how did you pivot? How long did it take before just contending with the immediate aftermath of that terrorism began to crystallize into the idea of what can we do? What should we do? How should I be involved in an effort to memorialize, right, and honor the victims of that tragedy? It was, um, for me, my personal moment um, came about four weeks and two days after the shooting when the FBI had turned the building back to me. Um, it was a moment I'll never forget. I got a phone call that they were done, and then I had to go back and sign some paperwork and, and walk through the building with them. So I had to go inside for the first time after the shooting. And it was that exact moment that I knew I couldn't reopen Pulse. Like it was like Pulse. Um, I don't know how to explain it. If you've ever been with someone when, they're, when they have passed away, like you should see like how the soul gets lifted out of the body. That's how I felt Pulse was. It's like it was a shell of itself, its, its spirit, its joy. All the things that you know we experienced inside there were no longer, and it felt sacred. It felt, um, it just it, it it felt like their space. And I, you know, by seeing the response of the world that far in, I just realized that it didn't belong to me anymore. I mean, although it did on paper, but what happened at Pulse belonged to this entire global LGBTQ community. It belonged to the forty nine. It belonged to the hundreds of survivors and then this entire community. And so I just knew that for me um, to make the choice to memorialize was because I, I could never, I could never imagine people dancing in there again, you know, and I couldn't imagine tearing it down and erasing it either. So it was just, you know, then the process is like, well, then how do I do this? 
you know, I, I had, you know, I was a business owner. I was a school teacher and a business owner. Um, and so, but I'm guessing, in, you know, there, I learned there are people who have done this before me and I just had to find them. So you, be, you began reaching out and talking to others who had, mm-hmm. who had taken tragedy and turned it into, I don't know what the right word is. It's certainly not joy, um, mm-hmm. but turned it into a, a, a space of reverence. And, yes, and a I space mean, to celebrate yeah. the lives of those who did not make it. Also a space where you come to learn about the history of what happened there, what was lost in the immensity, the lessons learned. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, I, I reached out at, at the time of the shooting, of our shooting in 2016, I could not find a private business owner who had been a site of mass murder. I mean, I just hadn't, couldn't find any of them. Um, when I looked, when you did find them, they were schools, right? And they were all kinds of municipalities, like airports, um, big federal buildings. And so there was no, like me, small business owner. So I thought to myself, okay, well, we are also a terrorist attack and there've been other terrorist attacks. And so that's where I, I started my questioning. And so I'd met a mother of a victim at, at, at an actual gun violence conversation. She walked up and she said, are you the owner? And I said, yes. And she told me who she was. And we, we connected that day and, and we're still very connected today, but it was her and I, along with a um, our chief curator, Pam Schwartz here in Orlando, and an international artist, Jeffrey, who lives in Orlando. We traveled out to Oklahoma City. and We met with Carrie Watkins, who um, was executive director and led the efforts for the Oklahoma City National Memorial Museum. She started it. She's still there today. So we went out to see her, and we spent a couple of days with her about learning about the process. We came home. We made the same phone call to the team at 9-11 and flew up and met Alex Greenwald, who was there. And her team, her curation team, her family liaisons, her government relations, her community relations. And it's those groups who showed us the process of even how to begin and what these spaces meant um, and how important it is that they're not erased and not forgotten. Once you began to develop a vision mm-hmm. of what could take the place of the, of the disco, how did you go about enlisting other people were they eager to join in or did you have to twist arms? What what was the process like of forming a crew and developing a plan? Yeah, the first thing they told us to do was to create a task force. And that task force was meant to bring all families, survivors and first responders and other local people that wanted that would, you know, would want to serve into these rooms to start these conversations of how do we want to do this? What do we want to do? Do we want to do this? What do we do with the building? Like, you know, and so we made those all calls. And what was difficult at the time in early 2017, when we started this process was that um, I had not been given a contact list. You know, I knew the names of the 49 angels. I did not know their families. I had no way to contact them. I did not have a list of survivors. Um, there's not an airplane, so there's no manifest, right? I had, I could have, anybody could have walked up to me and they did and told me they were survivors and they weren't. Um, so it took a long time for us to assemble the group, but we did through, through the Orlando United Assistance Center. They were able to take our communication and send this information out to them because they had it. The Orlando United Assistance Center, we call it the OUAC for short, but that's what that's the center that managed the families and still operates today under our LGBT center here today um, for their resources. So they would send it out for me or for the One Pulse Foundation, inviting them to the table. And so that's how the task force began. And um, that was the first thing we did was gather them. And then, of course, the foundation had to create a board and, um, and, and to start taking shape here. 
um, to handle the project as an institution. Is that a little bit like herding cats, or did people coalesce around the idea? Everyone wanted to be a part of it. I mean, anybody we asked, they would just be like, they almost seemed as if they were honored to be asked. Like, why me? Why are you choosing me? You know, oh my gosh, you would choose me. And it was, you know, people here and, and nationally really felt that this was something they wanted to be a part of, that they felt this was important. And, and let me tell you, the first 20 board members um, have, were working. We only had one or two employees. We, we didn't have anything to start up with. And so they did all the work. They helped write the first and manage and do all the work of the first three-year strategic plan themselves. Um, and he helps and gives us their resources. So it was it was a really hardworking board. And, and the task force is still assembled today. Um, and the task force did the very first community survey. And they helped manage the first uh, the interim interim design. We have an interim memorial that they helped implement. Uh, you know, I saw you. We we spoke a few years ago, but I I met you in person for the first time in October when you were in New York as part of an event on behalf of P the Pulse Foundation. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, One Pulse Foundation, which is the formal name of the project uh, that is creating a memorial, a museum, and a park. Would you tell uh, our audience? how that evolved and where the plans are now, what you're trying to build, maybe a little bit about the budget, et cetera, just so they'll get a sense of the magnitude and the and the impact that you hope to have. Sure. So, you know, when you think of what One Pulse is building, which is the National Pulse Memorial Museum and the Orlando Health Survivors Walk, um, think about the memorial in the same scope as you think about Oklahoma City's memorial and 9-11's memorial museum projects. Pulse has already been designated by President Biden as a national memorial. So, you know, we already have our federal designation, which means, um, although no money attached to it, um, does come with recognition. And so being federally recognized is a big deal. So when you think about our project, think about it in that scale. Um, there's only two nationally, um, you know, monuments in our country. And the first one is Stonewall and the second is Pulse. So we, um, after we held our, did our first um, community survey, which 2,400 people took, including families and survivors, about what we wanted to do with the site. We, we took that survey and all the results, and we launched, um, we first we launched something called an ideas generator, and then we launched a formal um, national, um, international design competition for the project, which was of three components. So when we launched that international design competition through a firm in New York City, we had 68 teams from 19 different countries respond to build this project. Um, initially, we thought the project was this budget would be about $45 million to build the whole thing. Of course, that's in 2018. It's a different time and day. Um, but that was our project goal at the time to build the three entities. Um, and remember, the Pulse Memorial will be built at where the nightclub is. The Pulse Museum was built about a third of a mile down the street. And then the Survivor's Walk connects the front door of Pulse to the Level 1 Trauma Center three blocks away, which is that's where we're designating these stories of learning about what survivorship looks like and how important it looks to survive. So we launched that design competition. We narrowed those 68 qualified teams down to six. Um, and on that jury was a family member and a survivor and, and professionals who, who could let you know this is a this is a well-developed team. And we wanted teams that we know could develop design such a thing. So we narrowed it down to six. Those six got, had responded to an RFP and they brought their models to Orlando. And just as we've done everything here um, at the foundation, it's family first, so it's family, survivor, first responder. The families, um, just as they saw the interim memorial before it opened to the public first, they saw the six designs 
Then the survivors um, came and they had their time with them and then the first responders and then the general public. Over 2,200 responses, because we had cards at every design. Um, and so they were like, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, how they felt about each one. And we kept all that data separately, just like we did for the um, survey we took. And so the jury um, was assembled, also had a family member and survivor on it and architects and people who would know if this thing could be built. And they ultimately came to a decision, which was overwhelmingly the one that the community and the stakeholders had all chosen themselves. And that team is led um, from a team from Paris, an architecture firm um, named Cold Fame. So it is a, a masterpiece. It's, it's beautiful. It's exact. People say to tell them, why are you building something so big? Why do you have to build this? I'm like, because they deserve it. And what happened to Pulse deserves this. And this community deserves this. And so that's where we are today as we have uh, spent the last couple of years, even during COVID, going through schematic designs and value engineering um, to get the project ready to be built. So uh, do you have any idea what the end budget is going to look like right now? And where, where are you in that process? We have been through value engineering because thanks to COVID, not only, um, you know, the cost of inflation has brought building um, quite frankly, almost double. So, you know, we are working on that um, now to see what that will look like. But our, our main goal is to be able to break ground next year in 2023 on what we consider phase one, which will be the National Pulse Memorial and the Orlando Health Survivors Walk. We really want to get those two parts of the project get their ground broken and get those built because they'll take about one year to build. Um, and that's about, those two projects alone are about a $12 million price tag, 12 to 14 million. So our goal is to raise that um, and get those projects um, going. And then the museum would be phase two um, when we get that completely engineered. So basically you're going about it in a segmented process and yes. you, you know only know what the first portion will cost because it's more immediate and, and tangible. Correct. But yeah. it sounds like the entire effort, if it follows, if you're able to follow it through to the end, could end up being in the seventy-five to one hundred billion dollar range. Does that seem yeah. reasonable? Yeah, absolutely, it can be. And you know, so we've done some value engineering. We made the, you know, the museum structure one floor smaller than original. Um, we have been, you know, doing the best we can, but we, it's just it's cost at this point. It's it's terrible, but it's something that's important to build. Well, you know, I kind of see this as the equivalent of the Holocaust Museum in Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. uh, and a, a community was attacked. And this is how we remember both the individual victims, the experience everybody had in having to contend with the aftermath of that, and how we try to create a memorial that will hopefully shield us from future events like that taking place exactly. uh, by educating people. Can you tell us if, if there are people listening who are uh, prone to wanting to help financially support the effort, how they can best reach your organization and contribute uh, financial support? Sure. It's, it's really simple just to go to our website, onepulsefoundation.org, and you spell out the word one, O-N-E. So onepulsefoundation.org, and just click the donate button. Um, you can also click the um, info button and send us an, an email if you have questions, uh, and someone will get back to you. But we appreciate the support. I mean, the foundation's doing a ton of work, um, not just in building the project, but it also does fund 49 scholarships, one in each one of the victims' names. And so we are starting our fourth round of scholarships, um, which is exciting. Our scholarships are national scholarships all around our country. They're up to $10,000 a year. You don't have to be LGBTQ plus to earn one. Um, and they range 
from anywhere from cosmetology up to journalism, medical school, uh, law schools, because um, the families of the victims designated that scholarship. And so whichever their loved one wanted to be or if they hadn't you know, achieved it yet. So it's that scholarship program is, is something else we fund and it's 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 been a, most rewarding. And I love when the scholars get to meet the families if they should, if the families would like to meet them. It's just a beautiful experience and it's ways to, it's another way to get the 49 angels legacies continuing in perpetuity and that they will have, I think about in a hundred years, we'll have a hundred Amanda Alvey our nurses, right? And so it's just amazing to me to see how we can continue to spread their legacy. Of- that sounds like a, an inventive and very commendable way to honor them. Thank you. You know, unfortunately, the attack at Pulse was not the last such LGBTQ-directed violence, or or the first. I actually have interviewed in my podcast series Joel Tucker, who was a victim at the Backstreet Cafe and, uh, and Disco in Roanoke, Virginia in 2000, when a gunman came in and, sh- and shot seven and killed one, and he was one of the people shot. Um, unfortunately, you know, we just experienced another violent attack uh, episode in the attack on Club Q in Colorado uh, Springs. And I I think I understand that you went out there to meet with the owners and to help them raise some funds. Uh, you know, how, what do you think we can do about such unfathomable acts of violence against loving LGBTQ people joyfully celebrating? How do we how do we do anything that might minimize the chances of that recurring? And how do we contend with all the hate speech, which seems to be inspiring a lot of those anti-gay people from acting on their on their deep-seated beliefs? Yeah, there's so many answers to the, all those questions you have embedded in there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, we have to make sure that we realize that Pulse um, was a terrorist attack and it wasn't a, and it wasn't a deliberate attack it wasn't set out to be an attack on the LGBTQ community um, but it doesn't mean it wasn't right and so I think that people you know he knew once he you know, he'd been in that building for 11 minutes before he went outside and armed up and he knew exactly who he was going to murder that night um, but Club Q um, the bar in New Orleans on the bar that you just, just the, these other attacks and just the attacks on their, uh, the LGBTQ community's rights at this point in time and education and healthcare. I mean, it is, um, how do you, how do you fix that? There's really no one answer. Um, but I think it does become, you know, if you, it's a multi-pronged approach, right? And so I think the first thing you have to say is that People need to learn and accept the LGBTQ community for exactly who they are and just accept everyone for exactly who they are, um, whether they're LGBTQ+, whether they're Black, whether they're Jewish, right? I mean, these hate groups that are surfacing and growing and multiplying in our, in our, in our, you know, our government and our, in our country are just, it's, it's, Unfathomable to be at this day and age of 2022, almost 2023, we're still having this conversation, but just, you know, teaching true acceptance as you raise your children um, and finding places that you are more alike than you're different. I mean, I, I think that many times people haven't met someone that they know is gay. And if you just knew someone who was gay, it'd be a lot harder for you to hate them and a lot harder for you to kill them. Um, I think that awareness and acceptance is number one, but I also think it's about belonging. And I think that we don't talk enough about belonging. And, it, you know, this pertains to those who um, are finding places to belong and find people who did find their place to belong. But you think about perpetrators and people who are filled with this hate. You know, they're, it's never a surprise if someone doesn't say, oh, yeah, he didn't have very many friends or, yeah, he was always a loner. Oh, yeah. And these are people that you could see that people saw that. 
They saw they didn't have a place to belong. People need to belong, so they're going to find a place to belong. So if they find a group. What you're pointing out is that we can look at a number of the recent terrorist attacks, not only on the LGBT community, but in general. And in almost every instance, after the fact, people say, oh, he had been put in an institution because of his violent attitude, or he'd already had a warning because he used a gun in some... You know, mm -hmm. there's usually a trail afterwards. Why didn't their families and their friends and their teachers who noticed that do something about it? And, even, and in some cases they did, and the authorities didn't respond to it. So there's kind of breakdowns in societal community mm -hmm. building that I think mm -hmm. allow people like that to s slip through the cracks and then end up harming multiple people. Right. I agree. I mean, our perpetrator alone, um, you know, he was on the he was on the watch list twice. You know, and um, still was left to uh, be allowed to own weapons. I mean, he worked as a security guard. He owned multiple weapons. And and so it's, it's crazy to think that we as a society and as a community aren't, um, you know, identifying it, making sure that it happens. But I also think that People have, there's just a lot of misinformation and disinformation about the LGBTQ community out there. This, this rhetoric about um, rumors, this rhetoric about healthcare or transgender healthcare and rights. I mean, it's just, it's, it's perpetrating hatred. It's perpetrating violence. I mean, it's giving people a pass to behave this way. I mean, in the 50s and the 40s, when segregation was happening, the, the Ku Klux Klan used to hide, right? And now these hate groups come out in the middle of the afternoon with a megaphone and they'll walk down the streets. It's like, how did our society to roll back to this point where people just feel that they're allowed to go out there and, and, and spew such hatred? Well, the problem is the First Amendment allows for a lot of abuse. Um, and it's hard to, to distinguish between bad speech that will end up in hateful repercussions and speech which is not dangerous. You know, it's a weird juxtaposition, I think. On the one hand, in a recent poll, 71% of Americans supported same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. So if you look at how gay people are treated and accepted in society in general in the United States and in a lot of other countries, but not everywhere around the world, our rights have expanded immensely and we are much more comfortable being who we've ever, you know, who we are than we've ever been before. And yet, the acts of violence perpetrated against us by individuals who have not made it along with that 71% are becoming more egregious and more common. So it's it's a weird combination of both greater freedom and greater violence at the same time. Right. I wonder if you could uh, just explain to us, I, I know you went from essentially being the club owner to being spearheading this inchoate effort which didn't have any formal organization to then taking on the role as the executive director on staff of the of the group trying to build the memorial and museum. Mm -hmm. And then I believe about five months ago or so, you decided to step down from that position and go on the board as one of the 18 or so, 20 board members. Can you explain your reasoning and why, why you decided to do that? Sure. And it was, it was last year, it was actually June, I think, of last year, that the trans, July last year. We made the transition over. Um, and I'll tell you a few things. One, you know, building this foundation throughout my, <laughs> in my state of trauma and shock um, was no small feat. And so, you know, I talked about the task force and I talked about this board, but there are also six other working committees to manage and to grow. And because you have education committee, you have design and construction committees, you have planning and governance. Like we are a fully, we, we were growing and growing and growing. And for me, I 
we felt like I had gotten to a point where, you know, I was spending so much time literally just in daily operations and management of an organization when I could, my best and better use could be out there telling the story and making sure it's not forgotten, spreading the word of what this foundation is doing. One person can't do all those things. And so um, it was the decision that was, you know, helped, you know, make through our executive committee here that maybe the best to transition to me into this founding role, take me out of the operation so that I was free to spend more time having moments like this with you and traveling to Colorado and spending a week in Puerto Rico with families there. And so, you know, our work doesn't just happen within these four walls. Um, and so it just frees me up to continue to tell the story, to spread the word of what we're doing, and, and to use my voice in a different way. So it was just a really good transition and being on the board, even though I was, as an executive director, I was still in every meeting. I still sat on every committee, you know, with no vote. Um, it was just better for me to uh, spend my time uh, spreading the word of what we're doing here. Well, I think it makes sense to separate the roles and find somebody who has experience in building Yeah. to take charge of all the committees and all the steps that move this thing forward a, a bit at a time. And then take advantage, as you said, of your experience of having been involved from the very beginning with what, what Pulse was and what it represented, and to mm -hmm. become the front person and the storyteller. And presumably, presumably a lot of that is fundraising to try to help bring the, the, the vision to a reality. It is. And it's, it's fundraising, but it's also making sure that people don't forget what happened here. You know, the younger generation who, were, who are now 18, you know, they were 12. This happened. Some of them may not have been out yet, may not have known who they were. Um, and so I think, you know, something that struck me and it stayed with me um, really deep in my soul was that shortly after the shooting, I think it was maybe two years after time is of no, is no, I have no concept of that since the shooting. Um, Judy and Dennis Shepard had asked me to come out to um, Laramie, Wyoming to speak at a, at a conference they have every year there at the university. And so I went out there and did that because if, Miss Judy Shepard calls you, you go. <laughs> and well, you so know, I we should have. we should probably intercede because like you said, a lot of the people who are adults now were not around when Matthew Shepard in in 1998 was taken out by two guys from a bar and beaten to a pulp and hunt, left hung on a, a barbed wire fence in the middle of nowhere and died. And he was some, mm -hmm. he was like 24 years old, I think, or even even younger. Mm -hmm. So Judy Shepard Foundation is kind of doing the same work or similar work to what the One Pulse Foundation is. And Judy's involved with a lot of LGTB. You know, causes. I was on the board of Glisten, and she was with us for a long time as a spokesperson. So, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that there's a need for people like Judy and you to do the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. But thank God that that you and she and any others that are in similar uh, positions have the temperament and the patience and the and the commitment uh, to see this effort through. How, how, what, what was the purpose of meeting Judy was uh, when you went out there? So I was out there to be on a panel with uh, other speakers, and it was a great experience for me. But what I what moved me so much about being out there was when I when I got off the plane. Um, an amazing woman you might know, Kathy Renna. She met me there, um, and I asked, you know, can you please take me to defense post? I really want to go pay my respects to Matthew. I remember exactly where I was when this when I heard of his murder, um, his assault, and, and ultimately his murder. Um, and she's like, you can't do that. And I said, what do you mean? I said, oh, I'm sorry, Kathy, but that's too difficult for you or, you know, whatever. Just give me the address. I'll grab an Uber and I'll go. And she's like, no, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, the person who had owned the home, um, 
you just retire of the domestic memorial defense post. He wound up selling his home. New owners bought it. And they understood why people were coming, but they didn't want people. I mean, it was just a lot for them to live there. So they took the fence post down. And so now no one knows where that is. And so in my mind, I'm like, how do you erase Matthew Shepard's murder um, when his parents fought for the only hate, federal hate crime legislation we have in our country? Like, how does that happen? So I said, well, at least let's go to the bar where he had his last beer, where he was abducted, right? And um, she's like, that bar doesn't exist anymore. <clears throat> they had torn it down and built something new there. Maybe not intentionally, but it did, it's what happened. I mean, I don't know the whole story. Well, it's, it's, it's as if the Stonewall Inn was torn down. Correct. There's a side story to that. Um, in the 80s, when AIDS broke out, uh, Jimmy uh, Losanto, I forget his last name, was the owner of the Stonewall Inn. And he kept it afloat for another decade, even though he was in dire financial condition. And when he passed away from AIDS himself, his uh, surviving partner kept it going until they were able to sell it to the current owners. And they have a walk, a wall of heroes in the mm -hmm. Stonewall Inn. And his name is not on it. The, the guy who kept it going from the early 80s until the mid to late 90s. And wow. with, with somebody in Scotland who runs something called the AIDS Memorial page on Instagram with 225,000 followers who was pushing for this. I went to uh, now city councilman Eric Botcher, but at the time he was the chief of staff uh, to Corey Johnson, the city council president in New York, and asked for their help in reaching the owners. And it took some effort. And it took us two years, and finally, when I went back there in in uh, June for the first time, there's a plaque up recognizing the guy who kept this bar going. So, you know, being written out of history is very common for LGBTQ people. We've always been stigmatized, we've been hidden, we've been un unable to tell our stories, and particularly when there are tragedies like these, we need our allies to rally around us and help preserve these moments and these spaces so that we will be able to pay homage to That's exactly that's exactly how I felt because getting to Laramie was no small feat I was exhausted I was still in my truck and you know trauma stages and you know planes trains and automobiles to get out there but after I was coming home I thought that's why I was meant to go there because I just knew more than ever that we had to make sure what happened at Pulse was never forgotten or torn down or taken away or erased because you and me and everyone who was involved with Pulse six and a half years ago will not be here in 50 years and if we don't tell the story right, and if we don't preserve the building for people to bear witness at, it'll be it'll be erased. And the community deserves better than that. It was a horrific moment in the LGBTQ plus history that night. And as I forget who said it was the Churchill. I, I don't know. Uh, those who do not understand the past are condemned to repeat it. Correct. So Correct. we need to keep the focus on these heinous acts of violence, so that hopefully they will mobilize us and motivate us to prevent them from happening again in the future. Exactly. Well, I appreciate your availability today. Thank you so much. Good luck with moving the process and the project along so you hopefully complete the first stage in the next couple of years. Uh, I'll stay in touch with you. I just gave a contribution uh, towards you uh, a few weeks ago for the end of the year and will continue mm -hmm. to do so. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say before we, we sign off? 
No, I just, I really appreciate you, Mike, and appreciate the time um, to tell the story um, and to let people know what we're doing and, and ask people to, you know, help in whatever way they can. And if that's just making sure people know what that this is happening, because I find so often as I travel around the country that people know exactly where they were on June 12, 2016, but they didn't know what was happening since. And so I think it's important for this community to um, help support and spread the word of what's happening. All right. Thank you so much, Barbara. It's been a delight. And I look forward to seeing you when I'm in Orlando next. Uh, that'd be great. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Bye-bye. The podcast you've been listening to is produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker, recorded and researched by Mike Balaban, with editing and music from Henry Lay.